All right. Well, if you notice, I don't have my ear microphone. So that's always a clue for you. If I don't have my ear microphone, that means I'm not preaching. So if I'm not preaching, that means somebody else is. And so uh, Pastor Matt Carnes is preaching here today. So I want to welcome Matt to come up. And I just want to say something a little special for Matt Carnes. Um, I just have to say, let's keep our six feet, right? That's right. Okay. So I just want to say thank you to Matt Carnes. Matt Carnes has been uh, knocking it out the park. You know, during this time, we have uh, opportunities to reach out into our community and to bring leadership in, in other areas of our church where we're trying to think outside the box. And, and Matt has done an excellent job during this time of bringing leadership to our staff and bringing leadership to the feeding programs and just working with Vern and Tina. Vern and Tina and Matt Samahal are a part of that team as well, and they're bringing leadership. But I just wanted to say thank you personally to Matt for, for his leadership and his love for God, his love for his word, and his love for you. So why don't you give a welcome to Pastor Matt Corns? Good morning. Well, thank you very much. Those were kind words. Um, we do have an amazing team here. Um, you know, as I was preparing for this message and beginning to think through what the Lord was laying on my heart, you know, I couldn't help but first of all, just to always bring thanks to what he's done personally in my life, uh, to what he's done for here, for our church family at Living Word. And specifically during this time, he's been so faithful. Um, and the reason why he's been so faithful during this time is because he is faithful. God is faithful in all situations. So just as Pastor Ben said, um, you know, it's an amazing staff we have here. And I thank Pastor Ben for his leadership, not only through the Word of God, but through us personally each day as we meet here, as we discuss, as we talk. And I'm just thankful for the men and the women that he's placed around us here each week. Um, it's exciting times. It's so different, but in the same token, we've been able to do so many things in our community that have been just such a great blessing. And I wanted to open up this morning sharing a story with you from our family. For many of you, you're finding unique ways to not only occupy your time at home, but I pray for you as believers that you're you're taking time to find ways to further invest into your children, specifically with the Word of God and what the Lord is showing you and showing your family. One of the things, actually I have to give full credit to my wife, my amazingly beautiful God-fearing wife, is that she came up with the idea of giving each day, giving the kids a scripture to choose from. And what she asked them to do from that was to break it down, talk about what it meant to them, how they were going to apply it in their life, and ultimately what their prayer was going to be. Well, for many of you know Logan, my youngest son, um, he was the one that um, got selected to be picked on for this message. I asked for his permission, right, Logan? That's right. And he was given a couple uh, scriptures to choose from, and the one that he happened to choose was the one that I'm going to be speaking on today. Second, um, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. And I love what he said here. The question was asked to him, how does it apply to your life? And the scripture reads, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So when asked, how does that apply to his life? He says, well, when I hear the words preached at church, I listen and I learn what it means and how to live according to Jesus' name. And I remind myself to tell others about him and also to be thankful for him. You know, just as Logan said here, let that be our heart today, 
that we would be thankful for what the Lord has done in our lives and that we would have ears that would hear what the Lord has to say to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather, though it be separate under your name. You know, to be able to sit in our homes and to be able to encourage our family and spend time together. And we ask, Father, that your word would do the work that only it can do. And that it would change our hearts and God draw us and bring us into greater Christ-likeness. I'd like to pick up in verse 5 as we kind of get a running start into this section today. We're going to be looking at Colossians 2, 6 through 15, continuing our series, All Things Held Together. In verse 5, Pastor Ben covered last week, and it says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's some encouraging words from Paul there to the church at Colossae. And as he's penning this letter here alongside with Epaphras and the concerns that he has for the church, he ends that section there with a word of encouragement to him. You know, when he uses those words, good order and firmness, those are military terms. And he's speaking to the church at Colossae in their firmness and their strength and what was started there in that church. And he's saying, church, you understand the truth of Christ. You understand what it means to be set apart for him. They were solid in their beliefs, but as we've learned, we know that there was some heresy that was beginning to creep into the church. And the pastor there, Epaphras, was noticing that. And as a good pastor does in that situation, he cared for his people and he wanted to see them continue to grow into greater Christ likeness. You know what's interesting about heresy, or maybe not interesting at all, but the reality of it is, is that what heresy says is that Jesus is not all I need. Or ultimately, more than Jesus is needed. But God's math, God's equation is Jesus plus nothing is everything. So you say, why is heresy so dangerous? And I think it's pretty obvious why heresy in of itself is dangerous. But I think why it's so dangerous for us as believers is because it's so subtle in its beginning. It's a... It's just enough truth that you know about to kind of hook into you. And on top of that, it typically appeals in some form or fashion to our flesh, to our human nature. But it's dangerous. Because I believe that when heresy is in its infancy in the church or in our lives, that a believer may miss the attack on the sufficiency of Christ. Because heresy says that Christ and what he did in the work of the cross is not sufficient. But church, our Christology, what we know to be true about the man and the spirit of God through Jesus, we have to hang on to. It's a truth that we have to anchor on to in our lives and realize that it's Christ and him crucified. And that's it. That's the end of it. And that brings us to our title for today's message, and that is it, that in him is all sufficiency. In him is all sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul wasn't giving any credit to his abilities on his own. He was giving credit to his abilities of who Christ was in him. And that's the same thing for us here today, believer. But as Paul moves through this message here, he begins to, he concludes with this encouragement to the church and making sure they have a firm belief and understanding of who Christ is. 
And then he says, I'm going to give you some application. We're going to begin to point this in the direction of how you're going to walk this out day by day. Let's pick up in verse 6 and 7. And it says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That word, therefore, always transitions us from a truth that he had laid before to now how we're going to apply that truth. Therefore, now that you know who Christ is, now for, therefore, now that you know that Christ is all-sufficient, now you can begin to walk this out. And he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So I'll ask you a question. How did you receive Christ? I'll tell you. And you should already know it was not of yourself. It was a work of Christ in your life. So just as you received Christ, something that was not of your work, now this is how we're going to walk in him. We're going to walk in him because of who Christ is in us. To remind us, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. In the same way we receive Christ, we then see the next thing that Paul tells us. He says that we will walk in him. We will walk in him by the way in which Christ has worked in us. We are being conformed in the greater Christ-likeness day by day as the habits of our behavior become more like Christ. Each day we get up, we pop ourselves out of the bed, and we focus on Christ. Our lives are patterned after him day in and day out. And the reason why is because of what it says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Another thing our family has been able to do during this time is being that we eat supper pretty much every day at the table. Um, we decided to start studying through the parables with our children. We're using a little book, which has been great. And this past week, uh, one of the ones that we talked about happened to be about the wise and the foolish builder. And I thought it was very fitting for us for this idea of our foundation being laid in Christ. It says there in Luke 6, 46 through 49, and catch this first thing that he says. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays a foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the flood sweeps down against the house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. The word picture there for us is very clear. The house being our life and the rain being ultimately the judgment of God, but also the trials and the tribulations that we walk through in life, and the foundation being Jesus. If we want any chance of weathering any storm as a believer, it's going to be because our foundation is on Christ. And if we're going to have any chance of spending an eternity with Him, it's going to be because our life is built on Christ and Christ alone. So as we walk in Him, it brings us to this place of being rooted in Him. This rooting process took place at the moment of salvation. It says that we were rooted in him. Remember, in him is all sufficiency. I naturally think about trees, 
when I think about roots. And I particularly, in this area, happen to think regularly about our live oak tree that we know so well around here. But you know, it's interesting, when that tree drops that acorn, and that acorn begins to germinate and begins to drive down into the soil, that taproot has one job, and it's to get to a place of nourishment and enough moisture for it to be able to sustain life. Well, that rooting process in our life is us driving a root. It comes through our salvation into Christ. But it doesn't stop there because he says that we would be rooted in him, and because we're rooted in him, we'll be built up in him. The source is the means by which we are built. We don't get stuck into that and then all of a sudden do it on our own, although we do fall into that trap so many times. Our being built up is because of where we're rooted in. Just like that tree, as that root goes down deep, is when it's able to grow its trunk and its branches and foliage and fruit begins to develop in that tree. But it's ultimately for us as a believer because of who we are in him. I love what it says in Acts 20, 32, and it says, And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. So as we walk in him, as we're rooted in him, as we're being built up in him, ultimately it results in us being established in our faith. And our establishment in our faith, once again, is because of who? Because of him. It's all about in him. I think about that tree, the older it gets, and many of you have seen those really big, massive oak trees. And one thing I've noticed particularly is at their base, they build up a huge mound of dirt around their base. Their root system is thick, and they're, and they're broad, their leaves are broad, their branches go far out. But the picture there is that tree is firmly established. We know that that tree will live potentially hundreds and hundreds of years, but only if that root was established from the onset into a solid source of moisture, and it continues to grow down. Because if that taproot doesn't grow down, then it doesn't grow up and out. The same thing holds true for us in our lives. If we don't continue to go down into the depths and the knowledge of who Christ is, our vertical limits will be restricted. Our horizontal impact will be thwarted. We have to dig and we have to go deeper into Christ. I think about so many of you that are here with us this morning that have been serving the Lord for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And I want to tell you, you are a blessing to the church body. You are a picture of an established believer in Christ. Whenever you talk, all you talk about is Christ. Whenever you say thank you, you always say thank you to Jesus. Whenever you talk about seeing you next week, you always say, if the Lord allows. Everything about your life is in Christ. And I want to thank you for that. Isaiah 61.3 talks about those oaks of righteousness. And that's the desire of my heart. That's the desire for my family. That's my desire for Living Word Church, that we would be oaks of righteousness, always going deeper into Christ. But Paul doesn't end it with just that. He says that we would be abounding in thanksgiving. Because of our understanding of his sufficiency, we can walk in thanksgiving for the amazing work that he has done in our life. I believe this to be true, that we will only be thankful for the greatness of our salvation when we grasp the greatness of our depravity. Church, we needed Christ. We need Christ. We will always need Christ. 
which is why we must continually remind ourselves of the sufficiency of who Christ is. Bringing us to our first point, that we need to remember that it's not about you. It's not about me. Remember, it's not about you. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I love how he starts off there, see to it, which requires action on our part, and not only a one-time action, but a continual action in our lives. As I was talking about this at home with, uh, with Rachel, and we were kind of talking through this idea of see to it, we thought about the idea of when you tell your kids to take out the trash, and you say, see to it that you take out the trash. Well, here's the thing. In order for them to see to it, typically means you as a parent are going to have to see to it as well. Um, but it's good. It's a continual thing that takes place. It's, it's, a, it's an assurance that something ultimately is going to happen. But this is what he says, see to. He says, see to that no one takes you captive. And what are they going to take you captive by? Well, here's a list. Philosophy and empty deceit. First of all, the usage of that word philosophy there is pretty unique. It's the only time we see this usage of that word in the New Testament. It comes from the word philosophia, which is two words, which is phileo, which we know brotherly love, and sophia, which is wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. But it's connected with empty deceit. And you would look at that initially and say, well, that seems to be two different things. Well, here's the truth. The love of wisdom on a worldly basis is the same connection to empty, worthless deceit, something that has no value in comparison to the sufficiency of Christ. In Colossians, in the Colossian church, this is what was happening. They were beginning to lay claim to this higher knowledge outside of themselves. And we're going to get into that deeper next week. But this is what was beginning to develop and take place. But not only does it say that, it says, he says, human traditions. Those are the things that we pass down one for another. It's not so much the traditions that you may have in your family and certain things you do at certain times. That's not really what it's talking about. Those things are good. What it's talking about is traditions that get paralleled or get tagged alongside or get added to the message of the gospel. Those traditions will take you captive and point away from the sufficiency of Christ. If we're going to pass anything down, church, it's going to be Christ and him crucified. And then he comes up with this idea of these elemental spirits of the world. Well, first of all, that's all the world can offer. And that word elemental speaks to the word elementary, which would be something very basic, right? The alphabet, your ABC, something that's rudimentary, something that's very basic, a very simple level. They're immature in comparison to the belief of of Christ and him crucified. So it says, don't let these things take you captive. Look what Paul says to the church in Galatians in 4.9. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known to God, which that's powerful, to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Right, it's so obvious to us. Why would we turn back to the things of the world when we have full sufficiency in Christ? Or you may ask, well, but isn't like childlike faith elementary? Well, no, it's different, and this is why. Because childlike faith is a place of our heart where we settle in on the fact that Christ and him crucified is all I need. I don't need to add anything more to it. It's the most basic level of belief for us as a believer, and it's fully sustaining. Versus beliefs that we bring in from the world to try and add to 
Why would we do that, church? We have our full sufficiency in Christ. I think about Sherlock Holmes, not because I read all of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's books, um, probably did worse on those in school than any book ever, but we all heard the line, right? Elementary, my dear Watson. Well, the truth is, is that's actually not even a real quote from the book. It's from the movie, but that's neither here nor there. The reality is, is what he's talking to Watson there, he brings up some point about some case that they're working on, and he pays notice. He says, man, Sherlock, I noticed you noticed these things. And Sherlock looks at Watson, and he goes, it's elementary. You know, of course, he was pointing to the idea of being an investigator and the fact that, yeah, of course I would have picked up on that. That's simple. Well, the same thing is for us as believers. We should look at the things of the world just as that and say, of course that's not of Christ. Of course that's in addition to Christ. Of course that is not the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It should be something that clicks for us in an instant in those moments. And we need to see to it that we do so, just as Paul said. And he wraps up this section here at the end of verse 8. And just to make sure you weren't clear, clear on those things that were not of Christ, he says, and not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. But he builds, right? He builds upon this idea of our sufficiency. And it brings us to our second point today, that we need to remember that it's about him and his fullness. It's about him and his fullness. Catching up in verse 9 here, it says, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. I love that first part there, and that's where we get this point from, this idea for him, the whole fullness. Well, just by definition, fullness is something that is filled or has already been filled, right? Pretty straightforward. It references in the, in the Greek language this idea of a ship, having all the parts it needs, all the workers it needs, the rowers, the captain, everyone needed necessary for that ship to go on the mission by which it needs to go on. Well, the same thing holds true for us. And the reason why that holds true for us is because the fullness of the deity of God dwells within the incarnate Jesus Christ who walked this earth. Being filled is a normal thing for us, right? We eat a lot. We get filled. We can't put anything more, right? But I was thinking about this. There's kind of some interesting stories that brought to my mind. One, many of you know a good friend of mine, Jeff Lacan, a member of the church here. And he, does, uh, he loves animals, all kinds. You saw him on Facebook last week for our scavenger hunt. Um, I think their tag actually said, we love animals. Um, and it had every animal. It looked like the zoo on their front porch. But one of the things he does is falconry. And for, for those of you who don't know anything about it, uh, talk to him. Um, but ultimately, we were talking about it one day, and he showed me uh, the, kind of the process by which they get started. And one of the things they do is they weigh the bird in order for it to be able to go and hunt. I said, well, what, you know, what's the point of weighing it? He said, well, he said, we know based on a certain weight of that bird whether or not it's full or not. And if it's full, it won't hunt. Therefore, we leave it in the cage until it gets more hungry, essentially, is what it amounts to. But I thought that was so fascinating because it's weighed down to the grams that they knew the fullness of that bird and how it would respond. You know, here in South Louisiana, especially during this quarantine time, there's a lot of y'all crabbing out there. And the number one thing I hear about people crabbing were they full? 
Were those crabs full? No, they were skinny. No, this and that. And some of you might be crabbing right now, and you're going to watch this message later, but I'm not judging. I love you. Crabs are good. But you know what I think about a full crab? I don't personally really like a full crab. And the reason why is it doesn't soak in the seasoning as well as one that's, you know, more medium-filled. But some of you love it. You know, I like to be able to pull that leg off and the big chunk of meat comes out with it. Some of y'all like to spend all that time digging around in there and, you know, we'll pray for you. But fullness, right? Fullness. It's a clear picture for us of what it is. Verse 119, back from a couple weeks ago. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How much of the fullness? All of the fullness. All in fullness. Isn't that interesting to use that word? It's like two words that are the same thing. All the fullness. Last week, the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All. Full. I think about about the story of the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8. She's been plagued her whole life with this, with this problem, and she spent all of her living on doctors and trying to get this fixed and trying to get this corrected with no, with no success. And then one day Jesus is walking through the town, and, and everybody's pushing in around him, and he says, who touched me? And of course his disciples say, oh, come on, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? There's people everywhere. I mean, what do you mean? No, he said, no, someone touched me. I, I felt it. I know it has happened. And Jesus tells her, what? Your faith has made you well. And then the fullness of Christ in that moment, and specifically in that situation, she was no longer in need of a physician because she was touched by the great physician. She wasn't going to the doctor anymore because Christ's fullness took place in her life. But look, that's just earthly, bodily healing. We've got the greatest healing of all time when Christ died for us as believers pointing us in a trajectory of eternity with him. That's the greatest healing. Because it says there in the next part of the text, you have been filled with him. So just as Christ was filled with the whole deity of God, you have been filled with Christ. From God to Christ to you. Church, look how impactful that is. Consider that. The fullness of Christ in the Holy Spirit dwells within you as a believer. The Christian life is from fullness. We don't need to be chasing extras. We have all fullness in the sufficiency of Christ. And he ends there and says that I have all authority. He's the creator of all the world. Isn't it amazing that the creation would stand up and try to add to what the creator has done? It's crazy. It's crazy talk. But church, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We try to add things to Christ. But if we get anything today, that our sufficiency is in him and in him alone. He moves into verse 11 and begins to give us some more application. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's speaking here of some religious rituals that they were dealing with, and circumcision being one of them. Look, circumcision was a symbolic command that was given in the law to illustrate the need a man had for his heart to be ultimately cleansed. Originally, it was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? In and of itself was not the issue. The problem is, is they were beginning to connect that to salvation, and we could never do that. 
Through the seed of man, our sin nature is passed down from generation to generation. And there was a, it was a picture of showing the need for us to be cleansed. But God's concern has always been the heart. He's not concerned with the flesh. Because he knows if he takes hold of the heart, that we will, be grow, we will grow into greater Christ-likeness. And our flesh will become more like him. He's not hung up on that. We are. We are. We get hung up on that. God's concern is our heart. And that old nature being cut off is in that moment of salvation. I love what it says in Ezekiel 36 through 20, 27, 26 and 27. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's about the heart. It's about a change of heart. And then he goes on and he brings up this idea of water baptism. In verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Water baptism, once again, an amazing sign of the work that the Lord has done internally in us. But given the wrong application and the wrong perspective of it, it gets added to Christ. Water baptism doesn't save you. But water baptism is a celebration of the inward work that the Lord has done ultimately in your heart. That picture when we go down into the water is us being buried with Christ. And when we're raised up, we're raised up in faith in that resurrecting power that Christ did in that moment. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same God that raises us from the depth of our depravity. And we must remember, bringing us to point three, what he did for you. Remember what he did for you, what he did for me. Picking up in verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wow, what an amazing thing that he did for us. Those previous verses verses talked about religious rituals and human work. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. It ain't got nothing to do with that. It's about Christ and the work that he did for you on the cross. And in case you forgot, he even starts off like that. He says, and you, and you, who were dead in your trespasses. Remember we read back in Ephesians chapter 2 and Galatians 4, the fact that when God God began to know us, And even back to verse 6, therefore, walk with him in the way in which we received Christ. It's a continual rolling over in self of the sufficiency of Christ and our reliance on him as our Lord. But he does something pretty cool here. And he says, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Well, first of all, we know our trespasses to be our sin. Our sin is when we miss the mark of God's holiness. But he has completely forgiven us of those in our salvation. And what does it say? All. And what do we know about all? It's all. It's complete fullness. It's all. It's in him. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, that by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we're saved. And our sins have been forgiven. The most important reality for us in, belief, in Scripture, for us as believers, is this idea of being justified outside of our good works. 
justified whenever we deserved death. I mean, the idea of justification of ourselves is just, it's so profound what the Lord has done in our lives. Many of you are sitting here today and the Lord has done this work in your life and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm praying there's some of you here watching this today that you have, you currently do not have a relationship with the Lord. And I want to tell you that he desires relationship with you. If you're listening to this message, I believe the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart and bringing you to the reality that God is sovereign and he's holy and he's worthy to be praised. The problem is, is for us as man in our humanity, we are just dead in our trespasses. We can't conjure up enough strength and effort to be able to come into connection with the holiness of God unless... The work that was done on Calvary, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes a reality in your life. And you accept that to be true and you believe in your heart that what Christ did there is sufficient to save you. And if you do that here today, you are a child of God. And he desires that relationship with you. Because look what it says in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands... This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. First of all, canceling that record of debt is pretty common language even for us here today. I think about a home mortgage. That's a level of debt that many of us have, maybe a car note. But it was literally something that was handwritten. It was a document. It was a bond. It was a legal document saying that this was the record of the debt that you owed a certain person. Well, the debt that we owed is the one for our sin. And it's one that we cannot repay. You're going to pay off prayerfully most of the debt that you have in your life, in your lifetime. And how cool would it be if someone just forgave you your debt of your home mortgage? It kind of would be in par what the government's been doing anyway. Why don't they just forgive all of our loans, right? That'd be great. Somebody mentioned the other day, it could be like the year of Jubilee. We'd just write all of that off. I don't actually, believe, I don't actually agree with that. Although it would be nice. We had a debt that we couldn't pay. And it says not only was it a record of debt, it says that it was canceled. Canceled is to be blot out, to be blotted out, to be wiped away. And, you know, for us, obviously, that would be like a paper shredder, burning a computer, a hard drive. You know, we can't cancel debt records quite as easy as they could back then. But the picture for them was as their writings were on an organic material. And their, and their ink wasn't like our ink. It didn't embed down into the material. So it was easily wiped away. And it could be reused for something else and so forth. So this picture here for them of being canceled out would have been a clear picture of them of this wiping out of this debt. It no longer existed. There's no more record of it. It's gone. It's over with. The legal demands of the law that stood in hostility, hostility to us, we could not obtain the standard. And we were doomed to hell. But then it comes this next part, nailing it to the cross. Well, first of all, that's a metaphor for us. For one, in Roman, Roman crucifixions, it was normal that they would post the charges against that person that was on the cross. We saw it in Jesus' case in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-seven, And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Doesn't seem like much of a charge, right? If for us today as a believer... But it was, in fact, what they had charged Jesus with. That was the level of, of, crim- of what his criminal charge would be. But I thought about this. While they were posting their sign about Christ's charges and why he was on that cross from their perspective, Christ himself was the post for our charges. For you here today, 
for you years ago when you came to this faith in Christ. Christ himself was the post of the charges. He was nailed to the cross and signifying and being the blood that was shed for you and for every person that would call upon him as Lord and Savior. And he moves into verse 15 and he says, And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus triumphed over Satan and all of those fallen angels in that moment. In that moment there that he had defeated them. And that picture we see there is one of like a general that would have just won a battle and he's parading through the streets and he's claiming his triumph. Well, Jesus did that through the work of the cross. And he's parading out there, letting them all know that, he's, that they've been defeated. And I think for us as believers today, and what Paul would have been talking to the Colossian church there, is that if Jesus is the one charged with the responsibility and the ability to be able to parade what he did in the work of the cross, why do we today as believers get on our own agendas and our own things and parade those things around? Why do we not parade anything other than Christ in him crucified. Anytime we get outside of that, we begin, to, we begin to bring charge against the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is all sufficient. We cannot be of a, a believer of Jesus plus anything else. It's always Jesus plus nothing. In our life groups, Right now we're studying through some of the secular gods of the world and the things that impact and come against the, the sufficiency of Christ. And I'm excited about getting back into that once, our, once we get the ability to begin to meet again. But it was, a, it was just a great series that was being started for us to point to the sufficiency of Christ and to be able to recognize these things. My prayer is that in your lives, whenever things come up, whether it be from a fellow believer, whether it be something for else in the world, that you would instantly say, That's elementary. That doesn't speak to the sufficiency of Christ. Because I think what happens for us so many times in our sin nature, in our humanness, we begin, we have a couple different thought processes that take place. One, there's just for some of us this horror or this um, uncomfortable thing that we have with just the same old thing. And if we're not careful, we can easily place Jesus into this same old thing box. But church, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous place to be because first of all, it's not, it is maybe an old thing and it is maybe the same, but it's not a negative thing. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. There is no same old thing in Christ. It's always new, right? As humans, we just have this desire to constantly be wanting change. And don't get me wrong, innovation and change and developing and all those things are good for us. But we've got to realize that that doesn't apply to our walk with Christ when it comes to the truth of his sufficiency. Yeah, we may learn other ways to advance the gospel, and we might find other ways that we can avenues and other venues, and that's good. But anytime we get outside of the gospel, anytime we get out of the fact that it's Christ and him crucified, we're moving in the direction of heresy. We're moving in the direction of showing that Christ was not sufficient. I need to add some things to it. He must have missed this. Church, that's not the case. He's all-sufficient. And his all-sufficient self comes when he's in us, when we are in Christ. I was reading a story about a British journalist. His name's Malcolm Muggridge. 
He was born in the early 1900s and lived into the 1990s. Spent a great majority of his life um, as a non-believer, actually as agnostic. In the late 1960s, he gave his life to the Lord. And he began to be a, 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 an author of many things. And he has a level of satire. He's wrote, writ, has written many books. And one of the excerpts in there was this idea of him just kind of painting this picture of the fact that everything going around us in this world and how it was at one point when he starts at the beginning of his life and he gives a, a picture through the end of his life that it's all gone and it ultimately counts for nothing. And I want to read the last part here because the first part is pretty long and it talks about, it talks about everything from Hitler to Mussolini to Stalin. It brings up all of these different things, the Watergate scandal. And he brings in this element for America, which I think it's important for us to see here this idea of what is going on around us, and that it does happen like the wind. And he says, America haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the great victories of Don Quixote of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone and gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and these self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands a gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. I present him as the way, the truth, and the life. That's John fourteen six. that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's no different for her. This is back in 1970. But in an interesting, here we are in 2020 with still the same things happening. But one thing remains the same, and that's Jesus Christ. And the message of the cross that in him we are all sufficient. All we need is in him. Our complete fullness comes when we're within him. So I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts today. One, as a believer, what is your core identity? Is it Christ and him crucified? Have you taken a chance to evaluate your life and test out the things that you seek after on a daily basis? Do they point to the sufficiency of Christ? Or do they point that you're trying to add things to your life outside of Christ? Are you adding things without even knowing it? Has it become so subtle? Is it something that you're so familiar with? Is it something that you've allowed in that you're not even recognizing it? Is it possible that the elemental spirits of this world have crept in to your Christology? Have they crept into the reality of who Christ actually is? Do the passions of your heart run hand in hand with the message of the gospel? Or are you out there promoting your own agenda? Are you out there doing a good thing? Have you wrapped up your national pride in your Christianity? Have you wrapped up your philanthropy in your Christianity in a way in which is unhealthy? Mind you, we are on this earth, and we are to be out there in that world, and we are to be impacting it for the gospel. But are what you're doing, have you added to the gospel, or have you included it in the gospel? Is the message of the gospel the purity of your heart? Is Christ all-sufficient in everything that you do? Is he all-sufficient in your failures? Is he all-sufficient in your things that you champion and the things that you do well? 
is this your best life now? Or are you doing what you do now for your best life in Christ in all eternity? Church, I would encourage you just to take this time to evaluate your lives. We have so much time on our hands. We have so many things to think about. And I want us to be a church that's busy about Christ and busy about the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. Because church, we won't make it without it. We won't weather the storms if Christ is not all sufficient. And this storm that we're in right now, this will pass. But there'll be another. There'll be another. Maybe it'll be something personal to your life. Maybe it'll be of global impact like this. But that's one thing that'll never change. It will be, and it will come. But Christ is all sufficient. Church, I love you. I'm so excited about the day I've been able to meet here and not stare at a camera for 45 to 50 minutes, but to be able to see your faces out here, to be encouraged in your walk. So many of you have been so faithful for so long, and I wish I could take the time to go person by person and show how each of you has spoken into my life because of your walk with Christ. And that because of you and because of your impact, many believers here are walking in a greater depth of Christ-likeness because you showed them that Christ was all-sufficient. As we complete this message and as you sit there with your family and your friends, I pray that you would begin to ask these critical questions. Not just for the sake of condemning yourself and the sake of feeling bad, but so that Christ would be exalted. So that Christ would be lifted high. And in that, he would get all of the glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work of the cross. And we thank you that, Father, we have complete and total sufficiency in you. They got the fullness of the deity of God dwelt within Christ Jesus, which was then put into our hearts via the Holy Spirit as we express belief in you as the one true God. God, let us never forget that. May the cross always be front and center. May the message of it always be on our lips. And God, when we see things the way in which you see them. God, we know you're at work. God, we know you're faithful. God, those are things that are true to your character. And those things never change. God, we give you the glory. God, we give you all the honor. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you. And we'll see you next week.